Uh, now, to conclude the afternoon, uh, refreshed with some water, will you please welcome Melody Foreman. a bit by surprise then, didn't you? You did, you did. I was enjoying the poetry. Thank you very much. Um, I need to step up the to Brooklyn for inviting me and thanks so much to Alison who allowed me to join her today. Um, I think you agree her poems are really fantastic and something creative had to be written about the ladies of the ATA. Um, I particularly wanted to read to you um, two pages from my biography of uh, Mary Wilkins Ellis um, which describes the first time she sat in a spitfire um, and uh, I think it will give you some idea of uh, what she was feeling at the time that happened. I had already flown a great variety of aeroplanes, including the lovely Hurricane, when on October the 15th, 1942, a date and time etched on my memory, my allocation for that day was to deliver these two Spitfires from the factory at South Marsden. I took a deep breath at this information and noted two Spitfire Mark Vs. AR-53 was to go to RAF Lyman, and I was then to fly Spitfire AR-516 to RAF Little Risington in Gloucestershire. I could feel my little heart beating fast with excitement. My moment at the controls of this wonderful aircraft had come. The taxi Anderson dropped me off at South Marston, and putting on a brave face among a gaggle of disbelieving male ground crew, this little girl walked around her first Spitfire doing the essential ground checks. Satisfied that all was in order, my legs propelled themselves like magic towards the wings of the aircraft, and as I was putting, on my, par putting my parachute into the cockpit before climbing in, a voice beside me asked, how many of these aircraft have you flown? <laughs> My reply in a quiet voice was, none. This is the first one. I think the men that day were more shaken than me. Within a few seconds, my excitement had calmed into a steady concentration, and I realized I was really quite snug and extremely comfortable in the cockpit. I looked over the instrument panel, which did indeed tally with the illustrations in my ferry pilot's notes. I thought about my training and noted the sleek black coated dials which housed behind circles of glass such bright white numbers and indicators which were impossible not to notice. There were among 40 switches. I went through them all in my mind. They were easy to reach and to handle. I noted the red metal crowbar fixed to the side of the cockpit door on my left. It was a stark reminder of a potential emergency and I averted my eyes from it as I was determined I would never need use of it to break open the canopy. Yes, all seemed above board and so far so good. It was strange how it took only a few seconds for me to feel completely at home in this beautiful aircraft. 
Everything sort of fell into place. It was wonderful. I breathed deeply and closed the canopy over my head. I saw my blonde curls faintly reflected in the perspex. The moment arrived soon enough for me to get the magnificent Merlin engine fired up, all 12 cylinders of it. I checked my brakes were on, the fuel was on, yes. The idle cutoff switch to off, yes. The pre-oiler needed to be on for about two minutes and the fuel pump required a 10 second breather to allow the lines to be primed. I was making ready to start this Spitfire and concentrating like mad, so I went through my cockpit drill again, idle cutoff to run. The propeller was set to fine pitch, the throttle set, booster coil and starter buttons uncovered. I then checked all around me and shouted, clear prop! And in tandem, I pressed the booster coil and start buttons and sure enough, in front of me, at the end of the long nose of the Spitfire, the propeller began to turn and turn and turn and then spin faster and faster, all at my command. I switched on the magnetos. I breathed deeply and the fumes from the exhaust sparked off the excitement in me again. And then came the great symphony of engineering erupting like an overture at full blast. Those 12 cylinders roared and roared, blasted out instantaneous three-second show of flames, and then shuddered their virility through the cockpit and into my bones. I consulted the temperature dials and the pressures. All fine. Come on, come on, the Spitfire urged me. It's time to taxi on out of here. As I closed the throttle and waved the chops away, it was time to take the brakes off and slowly, oh so slowly, guide the aircraft to takeoff point on the runway. I was already in heaven before I'd taken <coughs> off. I soon realised the Spitfire was no Tiger Moth, and very different to the old steady Gloucester Gladiator or the Albacore. I was in the cockpit of a thoroughbred, which didn't suffer fools gladly and was preparing to test me to the maximum. Hold tight, it seemed to say to me, as we gently swung left to right to ensure a better view of the ground ahead. I steered the Spitfire at this point with the tail wheel. When I reached the place on the runway for takeoff, I repeated my engine checks, temperature and pressure controls. Good, they were all fine. I revved up the power to 1,800 RPM. The sound of that engine filled my head and my heart as I held back the stick. The noise of the Merlin got louder and louder. I watched the temperature dial rising and I knew there was no going back. It was a now or never moment in my life. Come on, come on, urged the aircraft, now impatient with me. More checks, I checked the magnetos and checked the propeller again to fine pitch, try out the supercharger. The oil coolant cooler and temperature are still within limits and I monitor the slow run of the engine. Suddenly I'm ready for the off. No doubt the Spitfire breathing a sigh of relief at this moment as the girl in the cockpit was being slow coached with her caution and safety considerations. So the automatic trim was set, the elevator was two divisions on the up, the right rudder pedal fully in the forward position. Yes, the throttle was locked and the fuel was switched on. I checked again, the canopy was closed and my harness was tight around me and all of the controls were in full working order. Gently, gently, I open up the throttle and the roar of the engine fills my veins with gusto. I'd never experienced such a feeling like this before. I pull the control stick hard over to the right and the full right rudder keeps a straight level. I apply more power and with six pounds of boost, I succeed in getting the tail into the air and whoosh, we leave the ground. My first thought is I'd better get the landing gear up and within seconds I hear them hit the lock and the red light comes on. All of this happens in a flash. 
and up and up we saw, just me and the Spitfire reaching for that pale white sky, and still we climbed quickly and swiftly. I am flying my first Spitfire, really and truly. I decided to pull back on the power to plus four boost and 2,400 RPM, and I fly away from the airfield at 150 miles an hour to the delight of an enthusiastic ground crew waving in celebration at my successful takeoff. I soon realised the ailerons are quite weighty, but very responsive, and the elevator is refreshingly light in pitch. I check the radiator flaps, and the engine is at zero boost. I look down from the neat cockpit, and for a few moments enjoy the view below. I see fields, tiny random houses, then a cluster of buildings, a small village, and the lanes to and from it. I listen to the thumping hum of a happy merlin flexing its power in the sky where it belonged. But while my heart was completely fulfilled, my mind was busy in the cockpit of the fastest, most beautiful aircraft in the world, as I was responsible for its safe journey to the RAF pilots who needed it. I must confess the moment I'd surged along the runway and felt the tail lift effortlessly off the ground, any small nagging fears about flying the Spitfire had disappeared. It was a wonderful experience. The power, the speed, and easy controllability, all of these aspects of the Spitfire were tremendously thrilling to me. Thank you very much. Um, I could have gone on a lot, a lot more because Mary was very descriptive in terms of the joy of uh, flying the aircraft. Um, just to let you know, I first met Mary uh, five years ago in 2012 um, when I was working for a Spitfire flying experience company. I was doing some uh, public relations work for them and um, I thought it would be a good idea to get some veterans along to the event and uh, I got talking to Mary and uh, we decided that uh, it was a good idea to work on her book together. So that gives you a little bit of a background about how I got to meet such a fascinating woman who's achieved so much in her life. Um, I'm now going to show you a few slides um, so it gives you an impression of um, Mary's life so far. here, um, just to start at the very beginning. Uh, Mary was born um, in Langley Farm, which is a tiny little uh, King John um, hunting lodge, very old uh, building in a place called Leafield near Whitney in Oxfordshire. And this particular um, inlay on this bridge is at Wolvercock, if any of you know Oxfordshire very well. Um, and, it, and it goes to show that in 1912, when Mary's parents were first married, um, there was a heck of a lot of um, experimentation going on with the Royal Flying Corps and the use of the monoplane. So this bridge um, has this tablet here and it's um, a mark of respect to two pilots who lost their lives. So it gives you an indication that there was a lot of experimentation going on at the time and in 1912 it began to be realised that aviation could be used for military um, activity. This um, aircraft here is an old Newport fighter aircraft and this is the sort of thing that was at uh, Port Meadow um, airfield and Mary was born uh, in uh, February 2000, um, uh, 1917 
And um, I like to think that aircraft like this were flying over Mary's Croft in Oxfordshire from Port Meadow Airfield. And who knows, maybe Albert Ward or Mick Mannock was flying over. And um, it kind of sets a context for this, um, this uh, life of aviation that Mary had. And uh, I have all these other images that she was you know, being pushed along in her crown by her nanny and the smell of castor oil was in the air. Um, so these were the aircraft that were flying over her father's farm. Um, and uh, there's, there's all sorts of um, uh, different varieties that were began to be built around this time. Um, when Mary was nine years old, her father decided to leave Langley Farm and uh, expand what he was doing. She had three older brothers and one younger sister. Uh, this is uh, the manor at Bryce Norton, beautiful house, and if you can see the door, the little window just above there was, was Mary's bedroom, and she had, she had many happy years here growing up, having quite a um, happy, settled life. Um, what she did know was that <laughs> she had for the neighbours the Mitford sisters, um, and um, not far up the road at Swinbrook Manor, while Mary was growing up, uh, Unity Mitford was entertaining people like Goebbels <laughs> and uh, Herman Goering. And only a, few years, <laughs> only a few years later, Mary would be putting on a uniform to uh, go into, um, to be part of the war effort that uh, yeah, they had quite a lot to do with, obviously. So that's quite an interesting story. And there were once or twice when um, Diana Mitford actually used to give Mary a bit home from school when she saw her walking along the lane. So um, there's Mary on the uh, bottom right-hand side. Um, this was at the uh, Whitney Festival of Music. Um, Mary's a very, well, she was a very good organist, um, and uh, she can't play the organ now because her, you know, her hands aren't so lively as they were, um, but music was one of Mary's passions. Um, however, not long after this photograph was taken, um, Mary took her first flight in an aircraft, thanks to Sir Alan Cobham, who you've probably all heard of, um, the amazing aviator who set up the flying circuses. And in uh, 1925, he arrived at Whitney Airfield and uh, he had a DH-60 moth with him. And Mary found out about this and badgered her father to spend five shillings on a flight. And so a cushion was placed in the cockpit for Mary and uh, she took her first flight and never looked back. And there is Sir Alan Cobham. This is the sort of aircraft that Mary flew in as an eight-year-old, completely hooked, um, loving the sky. She told me she always wanted to fly from the age of three, ever since she saw a bird flying around through the trees in the garden. This is the church at, um, uh, this is St. Britta's Church, which, uh, where, where Mary used to play the organ as a child. Um, I visited this church in Bryce Norton last year uh, when I went to interview Mary's friend Molly Rose, who you may have heard of, also in the ATA. Um, this is Whitney Airfield. Um, this is uh, a tiger moth. Um, I'm not saying it's the first one that, <laughs> that Mary flew, but at the age of 14, she decided to exchange her hockey lessons at school <laughs> to visit the airfield. So. Um, her passion really seized hold of her, and I think she became the youngest pilot in the uh, Whitney area. 
this this tiger moth here is one that she would have started out her flying lessons with. Who was Mary's inspiration? Very interesting question. Mrs. Victor Bruce um, was uh, hooked on speed. Um, she was um, very uh, prevalent in the, in the motor racing world in the 1920s. Um, and uh, Mary said it's, she's someone that she she read as much about it as she could. Uh, Mrs. Victor Bruce had an amazing background. She was the first woman to break this, um, to uh, get a speeding ticket. She was she was caught doing 60 miles an hour in her brother's motorbike. Um, and the other claim to fame for Mrs. Victor Bruce is she was the first woman to take part in air-to-air refueling, which is remarkable. She flew the aircraft while the co-pilot climbed out on the wing in the 1930s at some stage and, and put the rubber hose into the other aircraft for the fuel. It's amazing, it's amazing things have happened, but there wasn't any helmet to say That's what, that's the thing, that's what you did. Um, by the 1930s, as you probably know, um, aviation was a joy. It was, it was pleasurable, it was a hobby, like people ski today. Um, it was much more free and easy. Um, all sorts of people were learning to fly. If you wanted to fly off to a picnic in Budapest, you were more than welcome to do that. You could turn up at an airfield if you had a license and take an aircraft off and nobody asked any questions. The skies were free. It was much more liberating. Everyone was enjoying the thought of aviation becoming the real passenger service of the future until um, uh, 1939, obviously, when the war broke out. But this particular aircraft here is a BA Swallow, and it was the first air aircraft that Mary flew solo in 1938. Um, and she spent many a happy hour flying her father over the farm, um, showing him the crops and the animals, and he'd always wanted to fly himself. So um, she said there was nothing he liked more than to take off one day from one of the fields. Um, this aircraft, she actually was reunited with in the 1960s when her husband announced to her he bought a swallow and when she saw it in the hangar she said that was the one I used to fly in the 1930s. It's quite a cute story goes that. Um, 1939 the war breaks out as Alison mentioned um, but by 1939 this very uh, forward-thinking gentleman Gerard de Langer uh, set up the um, ATA um, he'd been writing all sorts of letters to the Air Ministry about his fears uh, about the Germans um, and the amount of aircraft they had, but he did pose a question to them, what do we do, because we're going to have all these pilots who can't qualify to be in the RAF because they're either too old or possibly if they've got one arm or one eye, um, but they still could fly aircraft. So he was eventually given permission to set up the Air Transport Auxiliary, um, a very fascinating character. Um, and he was the person who Pauline Gower, as Alison mentioned, approached about setting up an air transport auxiliary reception just for the women. Um, Pauline had a job on her hands to convince those in, the, in power that women could do the job. Um, it was stressed upon her that she, if she was lucky, she might be able to choose eight pilots, but the month went by and then it wasn't until December 1939 that she actually got the go-ahead. And this photograph here shows the, what I call the first eight. Quite a famous photograph. 
of them all there. Um, there's Pauline on the left here. And what I love about it so much is <laughs> Pauline's wearing her skirt, um, but when they first began flying, uh, it was only to fly a tiger moth because the RAF didn't trust them to fly anything else. It didn't matter if you broke a tiger moth so much as if it was a fighter aircraft. Um, but Pauline is the only one here wearing the skirt because um, the others are all wearing their boots and you can, you can just see, you know, they're all looking, actually I think one or two of them, I think Rosemary Reese is wearing a skirt, but the rule was, not long after this was taken, was that um, uh, they had to wear a skirt, but Gerard Erlinger finally agreed to Pauline's um, demands that there's no point flying in a skirt because A, it was freezing cold, B, an open cockpit, and what if you had to parachute out? That's not going to be a great experience, is it? So, um, so after this, the, the women said, that's it, we've got to wear trousers, so they were allowed to wear trousers unless they went into the, the town. Um, but a lot of them said they lived in these wonderful boots, and they all went to Austin Reed to um, have their uniforms made. Um, so there's quite a few famous faces there. We've got Winfrey Crossbury on the left. She was the first woman to, next to Pauline, she was the first woman to fly a hurricane. Um, and then we've got, I think it's Margaret Cunnison and Margie Fairweather. I think that's Mona Freelander Allison, isn't it? Yeah, the ice hockey player. Joan Hughes, who taught Mary uh, to fly with the angel. Well, she taught Mary to, um, yeah, to move up her grades, because they started at grade one, grade two, grade, grade three, with, that, with the type of aircraft they could fly. Um, and then next to her, I think it's Marion Wilberforce. Then we've got Rosemary Reese and is it Gabrielle Patterson, I think. <laughs> I sometimes get the two tall ones confused. Ferry pilot's notes, that's all Mary had um, to work with, and the other, the other pilots too. Um, Mary first joined the ATA after hearing a BBC broadcast appeal for women pilots. So Pauline Gower had her first eight pilots. That photograph I just showed you was taken in January 1940. By October 41, appeal went out for pilots. Well, Mary was delighted to hear this. She was devastated when the war broke out. There was no more fun flying. She was grounded, she didn't know what to do. She spent a lot of time helping her father on the farm. But when she heard that appeal by Pauline Gower that anyone who wanted to fly with the ATA should apply, that's what Mary did. And on October the 14th, she was uh, invited to go to Hatfield to, um, have a, uh, to do a few circuits in a tiger moth. And um, she was accepted um, soon, a few days later, actually. And um, this is what the, uh, all the ferry pilots were issued with, and it's an incredible little book. It's unbelievable now, but every single kind of aircraft that was produced during the war, there were notes on how to fly it. So more often than not, you know, you'd get out of a Gloucester Gladiator and find that you've got to fly a Wellington bomber, and you've never flown one before. And that's all you had um, to, 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 do, to use, or talk to other pilots and get some opinions on different aircraft from them too. This is Joan Hughes, who taught Mary, um, who, who moved Mary through the grades from, from flying single-engine aircraft to, to twin-engine and later as a co-pilot with four engines. Um, Joan Hughes, as uh, Alison said in her wonderful poem, um, was extraordinary. She, she was a, a great instructor. 
That's her with the short stirring bomber, so it gives you some idea of the size of the aircraft that, uh, that they were flying. Um, Joan was one of only 12 women who actually did qualify to fly four-engine bombers. There she is again. This is baby-faced Mary. Um, I, think, um, I think she must have been 22 when this photograph was taken. Um, there she is in her ATA uniform. This is the Taxi Anson I mentioned earlier in, when I read from the book. This aircraft used to um, ferry the, the pilots all over the country to different airfields and maintenance units and factories to pick up the aircraft so they could fly them all off to the RAF. I think that's Joan Hughes getting out of the door there. The lady in the front with the parachute harness is Margot Gore, who was Commander-in-Chief of the Hanbor unit near Southampton, which was the all-women's ferry call. Um, the women's ferry call started off at Hatfield and then uh, Pauline managed to persuade Gerard Berlanger to set up um, the, the Hanbor ferry call, which was all, all women. There's Mary looking very young there. I think that might have been before she got, just before she got her ATA wing. So she began um, with the Tiger Moth, as they all did. Um, there's one in action there. There's the coveted ATA wings. After the Tiger Moth, um, a lot of the women moved on to the Harvard before you got to fly a Spitfire or a Hurricane. This is a Miles Master, um, another single engine aircraft that was used as a trainer. This is the trusty Hurricane. This photograph um, is of one of the very few flying today, uh, the poor old Hurricane, which um, yeah, broke the back of the Battle of Britain. Um, still need lots, lots more talking about it, really, because it was, it was just as effective as the, as the Spitfire. Um, this particular one is uh, owned by Historic Aircraft Collection and uh, was, was there that day. I, I met Mary in 2002 at Penn Farm in Hyde. Uh, there's Historic Aircraft Collection Spitfire Mark V, which is Mary's <coughs> favourite mark of Spitfire. I don't really know there's 24 types of Spitfire. Um, some of them, I think it was the Mark VI and the Mark VII with the Griffin engine, they could do 30 miles an hour extra uh, with the Griffin engine, but Mary preferred the, uh, the traditional Merlin engine. The ATA um, issued some of the women pilots with, with these instructions, which are quite instrument, you know, which are, you know very basic, but they, they do show you what does what and were very important if you were, had never flown a Spitfire before. Isn't it? <laughs> um, here's a nice photograph of some of the Hanbor women. Um, you've got Mary, top row, far right. There she is, hair's a bit longer there. Quite a few well-known faces there, if, if you know anything about the uh, women's section of the ATA. Um, of course, where did Mary live? Mary lived in uh, a village in Bursenden near Hanbor, and she shared her billet with this lady here, uh, whose, whose name was Dora Lang. Dora and Mary were, were great friends, um, and uh, it brings me to a story that Mary had. They were both flying Spitfires one day, and it got very foggy, and they'd both taken off from the same airfield to deliver to the same airfield, another airfield, at the same time. And uh, just as Mary put down at the airfield on the runway, she saw this Spitfire whiz past her and it was about an inch, the, the wings were an inch apart 
and um, that was Dora flying the other Spitfire, and Dora said, you know, they could both could have been killed. However, the rule is to always land on the left-hand side, so they avoided having a collision. And, and Dora wrote Mary's autograph book about that incident. And then very sadly, 1944, um, Dora was flying a mosquito with a woman engineer called Janice Harrington. And the mosquito, for some reason, they were landing at Lasham, but it reared up and Dora was killed along with Janice. Uh, so that was very sad, um, and uh, Mary talked very fondly uh, about the, the happy times that she, she spent with Dora. Um, here we are again, Mary and some friends. Um, this is a Spitfire with, Polish, with a Polish emblem on there. Now the lady hanging on to the um, exhaust there is Chile, Margot Duhalde, and there were women from all over um, the world flying with the ATA. It, they weren't just British women. And uh, Chile had actually flown with the Free French because when the, when the Germans invaded France, she wasn't very happy about this. And Chile actually did flying military combat, which was, <laughs> which was quite unusual. However, she arrived in England because she'd, read, she'd heard Pauline Gow was looking for pilots, but she didn't speak a word of English. So because there were problems with the communication over which aircraft she should be flying, they put her in the engineers area at White Waltham at the headquarters and um, Chile got, uh, got so involved with her training um, as a mechanic that uh, by the time she went to fly again um, her language was pretty colourful and um, Mary said the first person she'd heard say bloody hell was Chile. <laughs> uh, this is another story involving the Spitfire. This is uh, Dorothy Bragg. And uh, one day Mary was sitting at the airfield waiting to taxi to the runway to take off and uh, out of the corner of her eye she saw this other Spitfire taxiing towards her and she thought, oh, she'll turn around in a moment. Anyway, this lady careered straight into Mary and wrote off two Spitfires. Um, so uh, Dorothy Bragg was the one who had to take the blame for that. Um, but Mary did chide her in the... Uh, in, on the train on the way back to Hamburg about, uh, you know, it was a real shame that two beautiful aircraft had been written off. But if, if, you, if you've ever sat in the Spitfire cockpit, you'll know that the nose is very long and, and you have to weave it to see if you're going in a straight line. And she just said, I didn't see you sitting there. <laughs> um, this is another story about one of Mary's, um, Mary did have an accident at one point, um, but not through her fault. This, is a Fairchild Argus. She was flying over Hampshire, and this aircraft, um, the engine seized on this Ar Argus, and uh, down she um, and Mary had to put down. She had to force land it, look for a field, and uh, she managed to get it down into a field with a bit of a bump. And uh, all these cows ran over to her, and she said, "I was more terrified about the cows <laughs> than actually getting the aircraft on the on, on the field onto the field." And as she sat there in the cockpit, she was so grateful because a, a, well, a herd of marines ran over to her who were staying at the Volmer Lawn Hotel in Brockenhurst, and they came to rescue her. And I think she still writes to one of those chaps, and he's in his 90s now. Um, this is the Wellington, as you all know, and it's very pertinent that we talk about the Wellington here. Um, Alison mentioned Mary's famous Wellington story, where she landed one of these giants, and uh, as she got out of the, she climbed down the ladder, which is just below the cockpit, 
the crew on the ground ran over and said, where's the pilot? And Mary said, I am the pilot. She always wants you to get that phrase right. I am the pilot. Um, so they disbelieved her, ran inside, ransacked the aircraft and kind of shrugged it off that maybe, maybe this little girl had flown this huge aircraft. Um, Mary has a story about Brooklands. <coughs> she once had to take off from Brooklands in one of these and she said Brooklands was like a huge saucer. It was terrifying and you either made a success of it or a complete disaster and she couldn't find any pilots who wanted to take off from Brooklands because she explained it was like a saucer and it was very <laughs> difficult and a real gamble to get right. Um, there she is with some of the uh, Bomber Command crew. Um, I don't know whether some of these guys have any relatives around. It'd be interesting to find out. Um, what she did find very sad though, that sometimes she would be billeted for the night at an airfield where she delivered a bomber and um, she'd have dinner with them all in the evening and then she'd go down to breakfast in the morning and out of 140 men there were only six or seven at the table and she'd ask where the others were and be told they didn't get back from the range one night. So um, there were sad stories like that that she said remain in her mind all the time. This is Mary's friend Jackie Mogridge um, who also flew in the ATA. Jackie knew Mary in 1938 uh, when she was learning to fly at Whitney Airfield. Jackie had come over from South Africa. I think she was the first person to parachute, wasn't she, in South Africa? to do most things, I think. And, and she taught Mary to, um, she had helped Mary with her flying lessons too. Um, and then they were to meet up again when Jackie got a chance to join the ATA. This is an excerpt from Mary's logbook, D-Day. You can see how many she was flying. If you look at the 6th of June, um, there's, uh, there's, uh, she's got a Spitfire Mark 9, a Fairchild, another Spitfire, and then it gives you an idea of the, um, the, the day for her, and if, uh, if you get a chance to, to have a look in the book, um, you'll, you'll see that when she flew over the Solent on that day from Hamble, there were, there were just so many boats. She said you could have walked across the sea to France, uh, and then she said the next day they'd all disappeared like it was a mirage. This is, the, um, Vic, uh, this is the Vickers Warwick. Um, this is another bomber. This is the largest aircraft Mary ever flew. Um, she did get up to her class five license, but uh, so class four plus license, but to fly a four engine, you had to have a class five, which she began to train for. This is Chile again, who I mentioned with the interesting language. Um, this is um, a story involving a Mary's friend, Anne Walker. This is a Walrus, Mary's most hated aircraft to fly. It was terrible. She said it flew like an elephant, <laughs> an old seaplane. Um, now, this was designed by R.J. Mitchell, and Mary always said, well, what the hell was he thinking about? It's nothing <laughs> like a Spitfire. It was so difficult to fly. Um, and her friend, Anne Walker, was, had um, a walrus to fly from cows on the Isle of Wight, and Mary also had a walrus on this same day. Anyway, they both sat there revving the engine up, and she watched Anne take off, and then Anne only took off for a few seconds until she crashed in the hedge and nearly killed herself. And Mary was so shaken up about this, she rushed Anne off to the hospital, um, and then she knew she had to go back to fly that walrus that was waiting for her. Um, it had to be taken to the fleet air arm. 
And Mary said that's the only one time in her whole aviation career where she didn't really believe what she wanted to do anymore. She said, when I saw what happened to Anne, I thought it, that could have been me. Um, so it was the one time she just had to steel herself to get that aircraft where it should go. That's Anne Walker. Short, Sunderland and Feinberg, very interesting story. You needed a grade six license to fly one of these um, beautiful old flying boats. However, the ATA forbid women to fly them because um, if there was any danger of having a mixed crew on board, you never know what might happen if it had to park for the night. And that was the only reason <laughs> women weren't allowed to be involved with, with flying them. So yeah, end of the ATA, 1945, November. Um, there's Diana Granato Walker there with the flag. Um, I think that's Audrey Sale Barker. Um, very sad day. A lot of women, Mary said, didn't know what they were going to do. Um, but Mary was one of six who were kept on by the ATA. And she went on in March 1946 to fly for the RAF. And she was one of three women, first three women to fly the Gloucester Meteor which was an amazing experience. And once again, the ferry pilots know it was fantastic. Um, and she said to the, she said to the uh, ground engineer, is there anything special I need to know about this aircraft? And he said, yes, just watch the fuel gauge. <laughs> After the war, Mary had a couple of years where she, she didn't really know what she was going to do. Um, she didn't have the opportunity to stay with the, with the RAF. However, she, um, her father had a friend called John Stevenson Clark, and he was a very, well, very wealthy gentleman, and uh, he bought an airfield uh, on the Isle of Wight, um, which is Sandown, and Mary was offered the job as manager of that airfield, and she remained there from 1950 to 1970, um, and where she still lives next door to this airfield today, and there's Mary with, with her dog, um, and she began to do great things with the air, airfield um, and brought in passenger flights and made the Isle of Wight a pretty se sexy destination. And there she is with her little dog, Perky. This lady here is Vera Strodel, who's in the ATA with Mary, half Danish pilot. Um, she, she became Mary's chief flying instructor at Sandown, um, and Vera stayed with Mary for six months before accepting a job in Canada with Mary in the control room. I think these were early 1960s, these, these photographs. I mean, some of the kit is very interesting. <laughs> Mary's very fond of farming still. She retained a great interest in agriculture. And this is her favorite sheep, Sarah. And when they used to have events in the clubhouse and there were cigarette butts in the ashtrays, uh, this particular sheep used to uh, go into the clubhouse and clear out all the ashtrays. <laughs> There's Mary waving someone in there. Um, this is Mary's passion, huge passion. She had an allard, um, and this car now lives in um, uh, Australia with her nephew. Uh, as, as a member of the Isle of Wight uh, Car Club, Mary won three or four races in this amazing car, and um, she, she's pictured here looking fondly um, at that vehicle. Um, it did at first belong to her father, and then her brother, and then she bought it off her brother, and uh, she drove all over the southeast, winning lots of races. There's another cutting there from the Southern Evening Echo, Farmer's Daughters putting their foot on the map. 
Mary had a, a fleet of Gemini aircraft in the 1960s and 70s, and she was the personal pilot as well to Mr. Stevenson Clark if he needed to be flown anywhere on a business meeting. This is the church Mary got married. Mary got married in 1962 to Donald Ellis, later Donald Ellis OBE, um, and Donald uh, became very influential on the board of Hovercraft. Um, and uh, uh, it was because he had this job that in 1970, um, Mary and Donald went to Saudi, went to Jeddah to live. And so Mary stopped flying, and I think it was some regret. She, she left the, air, the airfield and she left Sandown, and she lived in uh, Jeddah for a few years um, to assist Donald with his career. And there's Mary and Donald together with the dog um, at Sandown, uh, with two trained pilots. Uh, this is Mary in um, the cockpit of Spitfire MV154. Very interesting story. In 1944, um, Mary got out of the Spitfire and she signed the door. Um, some of you might know this story. She never thought she'd see that aircraft ever again. But lo and behold, in the late 1980s, she was reunited with that particular aircraft because the owner got in touch with her. He'd found it in a crate in an Australian museum. Rob's Lanfu had it shipped back. Um, to Britain on, after a lot of politicking and um, yeah, underhand sort of yeah, wrangling. Um, and he got the aircraft, built it again, and then he called Mary and said, oh, I think you'd like to come and look at this Spitfire that you once flew. And there she is. I think that was, um, I think that was a couple of years ago when she, uh, on the anniversary, 70th anniversary of the Battle of Britain, she was taken for a free flight with the Baltry brothers. Uh, that was taken in 2012 when I first met Mary, um, and that gentleman here was in Bomber Command, that's Jerry Abraham. There's Mary again. Mary and Joy Lofthouse, which is quite a sweet picture at one of the ATA events. Molly Rose, another friend of Mary's, lovely, lovely lady that we lost about this time last year. I went to see Molly. Um, in Oxfordshire. She lived just down the road from Mary, where Mary used to live in Bryce Norton. Um, and Molly had lots and lots of stories to tell me about the ATA, um, which is in a chapter called Shared Memories. A lovely lady, and her, her son is actually chairman of the Air Transport Auxiliary Association. This is Mary with Keith Quilter of the Fleet Air Arm. Um, he was a lovely chap. This was a, this was a gathering of veterans they had at Biggin Hill, which I was invited to. Um, so I took some time to take some casual pictures. And this last photograph here is um, a picture of Mary with uh, Flight Lieutenant Charlie Brown, who flies the historic aircraft collection Spitfire. Um, that was a lovely day. And that, folks, <laughs> concludes my talk. But I'd just like to say Mary's one phrase about the Spitfire is, it's a symbol of freedom. And she'd want me to pass that on to all of you because I guess you probably all understand that anyway. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, um, do we have any quick questions for any of our three speakers? Yes, Mike. Hold on, let me bring this to you so everyone can hear. Yeah. 
Helen, I have a question for you, please. Yes, please, if, if I may. The work that you were doing when you were at the potting table must have been tremendously difficult and requiring immense concentration. You saw the, the criteria for what you're supposed to do here. In here. And we don't forget, we're all 18, 19, you know, we, we could do it because we did it. Yeah. It, it wasn't rocket science because we actually got there. We learnt on the job, actually. I think there was no training. We learnt on the, uh, doing it. And that's how you, went, you, you got on. And yes, at the end of it, you were doing something wonderful, but then so a lot of other people were great students, hundreds of us all doing the same thing. But I was just a little tiny bit like that. But, but, but what fascinated me is the thought of such intense concentration. How, how long were you at the table for? Did, did, did they give you breaks every hour? You had an hour. It, it was a, a bit on. Uh, it was a raid on. It was an hour. But of course, if anything had happened and you felt you were only talking hotly, you were missing something, you asked to be relieved. And there was always somebody there to plug in a gap beside you and take over. There was no shame in asking to be relieved, which I'd rather do that than make a mistake. Thank you. It's very helpful to me. Thank you. And can I ask you just one further question? Because it takes me back to my mother. My mother was uh, in signals at Dover with the Wrens. And amongst her effects, I came across a, a lot of the little photographs like you have there, the contact prints, um, of other people. And they'd all signed to each other. And I got the impression that if they had lots of these pictures, they would then share amongst their colleagues. So did, did, did you have a similar That's actually thing? one where you just went into a room and went, those with your colleagues. No, okay. no, maybe it Perhaps it's an easy thing. One thing that I didn't say, and I do apologise, is that there was always only the thought of the same. Yes, the first of the two were not, not arrived, they were great pilots. But they couldn't have existed without the ground crew, because it was their pride and, which is joint, it was their pride to get those aeroplanes ready. If they hadn't done that, and plug the holes,